Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And today, we get happy. We're getting a happy chappy with Dr. Tim Sharp, who is also known as Dr. Happy. He has three degrees in psychology, not one, not two, but three, as well as a long record as an academic clinician and coach. And we're going to be covering everything from creating greater states of happiness in yourself to the relationship between being happy and achieving success. This is going to be an incredible episode when you consider that people who are already happy are 78% more likely to achieve success in their life and their business. Let's get happy. Listen up. Tim Sharp, thanks for joining us, mate. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. So I'm curious to know, like they call you Dr. Happy. Where, how did you get to this point? Um, well, I didn't call myself that. I should kind <laughs> of begin with. And in fact, to be honest, it was a bit of an accident. I, I got years and years ago, my background was in clinical psychology. And then about 15 years or so, or so ago, I shifted to positive psychology. So I started to talk a lot more about... So the Martin Seligman movement, yeah? Exactly. So but the very, very early days of that, uh, when I first started doing it, no one in Australia had even heard of positive psychology uh, at that point. Uh, but anyway, I used to do a lot of work with a friend and a colleague um, in uh, organisational consulting, and we'd do what used to then be called work-life balance programs and stress yeah, management right. programs. Anyway, uh, it cut long story short, one day, and I've talked to him since, and he said he didn't even give it any thought, but he signed off an email saying, see you, Dr. Happy. And it, um, uh, I must admit, initially I was quite reluctant to to adopt it because I had a, uh, without sort of being too immodest, I, I, um, I had a good reputation at the time. I was sort of well-established. <laughs> I got several degrees in psychology. I thought people aren't going to take me seriously anymore. Yeah, right. Um, but... I then learned pretty quickly that it could become its own brand, I suppose. So yeah. I, I kind of embraced it and, it and it became its own thing. It took on its life of its own. Yeah. And now uh, Dr. Happy is almost a separate entity to Dr. Tim Sharp. Um, and uh, I try to use it in, in the right sort of way. In the right sort of way. Because it's funny because I have met one other doctor who called himself Dr. Happy. Uh, that was in Venice Beach, but it was handing out, handing out cannabis cards. Yeah. So, <laughs> so maybe not the maybe not the uh, the place we want to go. But anyway, I'm curious to know why is happiness become such a focus, uh, especially a focal point for science? Uh, clearly, you know, with your background in clinical psychology, you know, you're typically working with people that are experiencing, you know, either you know, whether it be depression or issues in their life that um, you know they're affecting their performance just in life in general. Mm-hmm. But is this something that people naturally come to you saying, look? I want to be more happy or is it typically I want to feel less depressed? Uh, well, look, both. Um, so there's a couple of questions in there. I'll try to break them down. Yeah, First, I get asked a lot, why is happiness such a focus now? Why are we spending so much time thinking about it? And my response is it's not really a new focus. For Forever people have been thinking and talking about living their best lives, happiness. I mean, you've got every major religion, every great spiritual or philosophical leader in some way or other has touched on it. They might have used slightly different words or phrases. But, you know, the ancient Greek philosophers talked about it in different ways. So... So the pursuit of happiness is not really a new thing. Uh, one thing you did say, what is new, is the scientific study of it. Yeah, so, right. um, again, positive psychology is a relatively new discipline, i.e. 15-plus years. Um, and before that, and, and again, I, um, I, mean, I, I did three degrees in psychology, and I, I don't say that to boast, but in all of those years I didn't study happiness once. We, we spent That's years and years, and the only thing we focused on was stress, depression, anxiety, yeah, right. where people were going wrong in their lives. And, look, that's really important. Uh, it was a very, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, and found very satisfying my clinical psychology years. It's very, you know, there are people out there suffering depression, etc., and we need to help them. Um, but what a few people started to ask, and Marty Seligman was probably the most famous one, but there are a whole bunch of other people around at that time, 
that um, you know for so long we and by we at that point they were talking about psychologists but obviously other disciplines are involved but you know they said for so long we've been saying what's wrong with people and how can we fix it what if we actually ask what's right with people and how can we make more of that? Mm. And that was kind of – so Marty mentioned something like that in his speech as president of the American Psychological Association in 1998 and that was the start. And over the next few years, this idea of studying thriving and flourishing as opposed to um, misery and distress and dysfunction, you know, what if we did that? And um, positive psychology, I should know, isn't just about happiness – um, in fact, there's even some positive psychologists who don't like to use the word happiness because they think it's misunderstood. And um, it's really about living our best lives or what technically we refer to as thriving and flourishing. And one part of that is positive emotion like happiness, but there's lots of other parts to it as well. Yeah, right. Because it's interesting. One of the things that I've learned about my own psychology is whatever I focus on, I get more of. You know, whatever we focus on expands, which kind of points to the fact that, you know, if someone's depressed but they're constantly talking to other people about why they're depressed – it only kind of makes sense that it's going to create more depression. So has this actually come over, crossed over now at a therapeutic level where you know we don't just have practitioners now that are sitting down talking about why people are depressed and psychoanalyzing them and finding out why they're depressed, where they're actually working on helping them focus on the things in their life that are going well that has been in some cases what you're telling me the science has proven to actually create greater states of happiness and in many cases reduce depression as well. Yeah, definitely um, you know, a really important point. And one of, the, uh, you know, one of the early questions or issues within positive psychology, one of the realisations I suppose is that historically we had this idea, again we as clinical psychologists had this idea that, and I'll just talk about depression, but it can apply to any other form of um, you know, dysfunction as well I suppose. But you know, the, the, the assumption was if we take someone who's depressed and we take the depression away then everything else will be fine. But it doesn't really work like that. If you have something that's not, you know, if you have something that's bad and you take it away, you just get not bad. You don't necessarily get good. So taking away depression or, you know, resolving depression or anxiety doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. It's a good start. It's an important start for some people. But there's a lot more we need to do to take someone not just from minus 10 to zero, but from zero to positive 10. And you're 100% right. Um, a lot of the positive psychology principles are now infiltrating their way into therapy. So there's, a, there's actually a movement called positive therapy, which builds on a lot of the really good stuff we did before that. And, and you know, there's a lot of really good work through, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but you know, co- the cognitive behavioral therapies, yep. et cetera. So we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. A lot of that's really, really effective. Very helpful. Um, but we've sort of added another dimension to that. Um, or certainly a lot of people are. And even um, so an, another sort of contemporary version of that, acceptance commitment therapy or ACT is, um, again, a, a, almost a type of positive therapy or positive psychology approach in some ways. And you know, I think that's really important because as, you, as important as it is to help people overcome depression, anxiety, etc. We also need to help them do much more. I mean, I don't want I don't want to and I don't want my kids to leave just an okay life that doesn't have depression. I want them to live a great life that has happiness and joy and success. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if you heard of Tony Shea. He runs a company in the US called Zappos. Uh, and he has written a book called Delivering Happiness. And his whole psychology around customer service and business is, you know, delivering the customer happiness, creating incredible cultures that, you know, generate happiness within their culture that generate high levels of performance. Uh, and I'm trying to remember the actual statistic, but and I think it was from from memory. But please correct me if I'm wrong, because I think it actually came from the positive psychology movement. But from memory, it was uh, it was it was a very high statistic. It was something like 78 percent of people who, if you're happy already, you are 78 percent more likely to experience a, a success in your life. Is that like am I on, am I close to it here? Or? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what research you're referring to, but yeah. the essence of what you're saying is definitely true. We know that. Um, so what we know is that positive emotions, and again, happiness is just one of them, but yeah. positive emotions 
um, are much more useful and beneficial and important than just making us feel good. Yep. And historically, I mean, that's that's historically why we didn't people didn't study psychology, study happiness, sorry, because they thought it was just just kind of this nice. It thing. It was an emotion, just a nice emotion on the spectrum that didn't really have much importance. Yeah. Um, but what we now know, largely due to um, a woman called Barbara Fredrickson, who led the research in this area, she actually uh, developed a theory called the broaden and build theory of positive emotions, which, in short, explained or posited that um, you know, yes, it's nice to feel happy. Obviously, it's and it's nice by definition to experience positive emotions, but it's actually much even better than that than we realize because what happens when we experience genuine positive emotions is that we have this phenomenon called broaden and build. So by that, our minds literally broaden. We become more open-minded. More aware, more uh, conscious. More aware of everything. We see more alternatives, so we're better at problem-solving because yeah. we come up with more solutions, so we're also more resilient, etc., etc. But we're also more able to build on both our internal and external resources. So by internal resources, you know, our, our strengths and talents and attributes, we can use them better when we're experiencing positive emotions. We're also better at collaborating and asking for help and using other people. I don't mean using in a manipulative way, yeah. but in a positive way. So, again, that broaden and build when we experience genuine positive emotions. And I should say, we're not going to feel like that all the time. But if we experience more positive emotions, then we're more likely to have this broaden and build and we're definitely more likely to be successful and this has definitely been proven in workplaces. And what's interesting I find is because um, obviously a lot of my work is in the area of performance, human performance and also business performance. But oftentimes I'll sit down with someone and, and say, you know, are you happy? And they'll go, yes, but they, they're clearly not looking happy. But then we'll say to them, okay, so why do you do what you do? And they go, well, to ultimately have more time, make more money. So if you had more time, had more money, what would you do? Well, if I had more time, I'd do this. And if you're able to do that, what would that give you that don't have it? Well, I'd, I'd get this. And, if you're able, and ultimately I've got to the end of it and I'll say, well, well, I just want to be happy. And it's almost a bit of a, a gestalt for some people where they don't actually realize that you actually don't need more money in order to be happy. It's really just a perspective. So what do you think it is that prevents people from having that shift and thinking, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a destination. Happiness is a destination. You know, I've, I've got to get somewhere. I've got to be, I've either got to find the right mate. You know, I've got to get the right job. You know, I've got to have this amount of money, drive this car, live in this suburb. Why do you think people put happiness so far outside of themselves when in reality, from what the science tells us and even what philosophy has told us for thousands of years, it actually lives on the inside? Mm. Yeah, look, really good question. And I've experienced exactly the same phenomenon multiple times over the years with various clients in different contexts. Uh, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, um, although, well, actually, so I, I often do this in, in some of my keynotes or talks. I'll often ask an audience, you know, how many of you would like to be happier? Even if you're happy now, how many of you would like to be happier? And you know, 99.9% of people put up their hands. Uh, sometimes there's one person asleep by that stage. So, um, <laughs> But, you know, obviously, it, no matter how good things are, we'd like things to be better. So everyone wants to be happy, happy or happier. But what I'll then sometimes say is how many of you have a happiness plan? And depending on the audience, and I speak to all sorts of different people in different contexts, but typically, you know, you might get 10% of people. Now, if you don't have a plan, you're not going to achieve something or you're far less likely to yep. achieve something. So that's one of the first problems. Although most people want it, they don't really know what it is. They've never actually sat down and defined it, and they don't know how they're going to get there. Now, if you don't know what something is and you don't know how you're going to get there, you know, it's just like a financial plan or a, or a fitness plan. Or you know, if, I, if I want to run a marathon and I've never actually run before, I need to sit down and work out how am I going to do that this week and next week and build up to it. Or if I want to lose weight or whatever it might be, is that if I want to create wealth, you know, I need to have a savings plan and a wealth creation plan. So is it fair to say that the happiness is like a muscle? Like we need to actually exercise that if we want to experience more of it? 
Uh, well, partly we certainly so happiness is a it's a complex phenomenon and it means different things to different people. Right? And I mentioned earlier that a lot of people don't even know what it is. But well, it, that's what's going to go next. Yeah. Like, how, what is the baseline? What is happiness? And can we measure it? Definitely. Um, psychologists, uh, despite what some people think about psychologists, psychologists spend a lot of time measuring things. So there's actually multiple measures, but there's also multiple definitions of happiness. So I'll break it down into the two simplest ones. The simplest one we've already touched on, and that's that happiness is just one positive emotion, along with a range of other positive emotions like joy and contentment and satisfaction and pride, etc. Um, so that's relatively easy to measure. We can measure our moods and our emotions in different ways. But that's not all happiness is because if, if all we did is focusing on feeling good, that's a bit like hedonism or narcissism almost. And we know that's not really the long-term answer. Feeling good is important, but it doesn't really go deep and it doesn't really last long. So really what positive psychology is about is not just feeling good, not just the positive emotion part of happiness, but it's about living our best possible lives or, as I said earlier, thriving and flourishing and that definition actually has multiple components. So that involves positive emotions, but it also means having meaning and purpose in our life, which is important. Uh, it involves um, living a, a physically healthy life, so exercise and diet and sleep. involves the right sorts of attitudes. very much involves the right sorts of relationships, so feeling connected and like we have a sense of community around us. So when you put all of those things together, that's what positive psychology is really about. And some of those things... Will take so you know achieving setting meaningful goals and working towards meaningful goals isn't always easy. Sometimes there'll be blood, sweat, and tears. So we won't necessarily feel happy and joyful every minute mm. of every day, but we know that it's going to be worth it in the end. And that's a different type of happiness. Yeah, right. So it sounds to me like from what you said, most people's expectations of happiness is unrealistic. Definitely. And to, so to come back to a point you touched on earlier, we and I don't mean to blame these other sources because we need to take responsibility but we're yeah. fed all sorts of myths and misconceptions all the time you've touched on a few of them you know we're we're told repeatedly that if you have more stuff you'll be happy if you have more money you'll be happier if you wear this particular brand of clothing or drink this particular type of drink um and although you know if you ask someone in a in a calm rational state do you really think you know wearing that particular type of jeans or drinking that particular type of soft drink is going to make you happy that's oh, of course not but we get sucked into this because we're told this thing thousands of times a day every time we pick up our smart devices or every time we watch TV or go online. And so it's hard to, it's hard to resist that sometimes. So we get sucked into buying that new thing or spending that more money or, or even going for that job or taking that promotion that we don't really want, but we mm. think, well, it's going to be more money, so I can't say no to that. So um, those things aren't bad. I mean, money's not, a, money's not an evil thing and, and material possessions aren't bad things. But we need to understand what they are for what they are. And the purpose of them. They serve a purpose yeah. and they can be great in some contexts, but they won't ultimately, not long term and not deep, really give us that sense of happiness so many of us desire. And it's interesting because like, minimalism is becoming quite a movement. And, and what's interesting now is looking at the minimal, minimalism movement and also the correlation between increase in joy and happiness. Um, is there any science that you've seen around that so far that's coming out? Yeah, uh, look, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the minimalist movement, and it's a, um, you know, it's consistent with a lot of what, um, well, a lot of what psychology has really, you know, been saying for years. It's just, I guess it's just using a slightly different language. But, yeah. Um, although I should say, I think it's often misunderstood. I mean, the, my interpretation anyway of the minimalist isn't that it's not that we shouldn't ever buy something or we shouldn't ever, um, you know, spend money. It's not sort of anti-capitalism, I don't think. But what it is saying is every time you go shopping, or every time you think about buying something, you got to ask yourself, is it really going to add value to my life? Because so many of us have so many things that don't really add value. I mean, I, and I've read research that says 
the average person only wears 30% of their wardrobe. Um, you know, the average person in Australia and across the Western world throws out significant amounts of food at the end of every week. So we're, we're clearly buying things that we're not using and we don't need, um, which is not necessarily helpful for a variety of reasons. So I, I think also with happiness, it's um, what we need to think about, and this is where the minimalist movement's really useful, I think, is so often we think about what we want more, you know, we want more of this in our life, we want to do more of that, and that's fine. Sometimes we forget about what we should have less of. Mm. And I think this is what I take from the minimalist movement is what do we need to take out of our lives, both psychologically and physically, I suppose, to free up more time to, to focus on the, the really important things, like things like our relationships. Yeah, right. And what I'm curious to know is ha- has happiness for some people come so much of a focus that it almost becomes addictive in nature? Uh, and does that then lend itself to the possibility of, well, you know, in order for me to be happy, then I need to have a drink. I need to smoke a su- smoke or take a substance. Like, is there any correlation between substance use and happiness and, addi- and addiction? Is there? A- uh, or, or yes and no. I think um, there's a couple of things there. But one part of what you touched upon is this misunderstanding that happiness is just about hedonism. So it's just about pleasure. Uh, now, pleasure is not a bad thing at all. In fact, pleasure is a great thing, and it's great to have fun. It's great to enjoy life. But what we need to understand is one. That's only part of happiness, or it's only part of living our best life. And two, we also need to understand that some pleasures have side effects. Mm. You know, so drugs and alcohol, for example, can certainly bring on a pleasurable state, but for how long, and what happens afterwards, and what are the consequences if you take it for too long, etc. And um, so clearly, that's you know that's an issue that some people struggle with. Um, uh, yeah. And, and it's, it's one of the things I'm seeing, obviously, with the advent of the internet and the access to information, a lot of people have this microwave mindset. You know, they want everything in 60 seconds. Uh, and that's where, you know, one of the things I'm I'm seeing, not just in, in, in social circles, but I'm seeing this in business as well. Like addiction is becoming a real issue. You know, it's, it's something that I believe has always been there, but it's something that's becoming more and more. And I think oftentimes it's because people are looking for that quick fix. They are looking for, well, how can I feel happy, you know, just by, you know, within 30 minutes without having to do any work other than just swallow a substance. So when we look at the practical nature of positive psychology, what are some of the things that we can do on a day-to-day or a moment-to-moment basis that will increase and increase our levels of happiness first and foremost, and then we'll maybe look at like how do we sustain that? Because I think, mm-hmm. again, it's that microwave mindset. If I can't get it instantly, I'm not interested. And one of the things I've learned, anything worthwhile in life requires a pursuit. And anything that is going to be of you know greater benefit, you don't just pursue it once. It's an ongoing pursuit. So what do we do and what can we do to, to get there? And what are some of the simple things we can do to sustain it? Mm, yeah, I think you've had a couple of important points. And, and you touched on this a little bit earlier when you talked about the journey versus the destination. Yeah. Like, you know, this has been an ongoing debate, not just in positive psychology, but in yeah. philosophy for, for, for ever almost. Um, and people sometimes ask, you know, so is happiness you know, an end result that we should aim towards or is it about the process? To be honest, I think it's both. I don't think we can ignore either um, because we, we need that end destination. I think it's helpful to have that um, uh, that goal to aim towards, whatever that might be, and it will definitely be different for different people. So, you know, I, guess, I think I generally think it's very important for everyone, if they're going to live their best possible lives, they need, need to know what that best life looks like. What does it actually look like? What would it feel like? What would you be doing day to day, week to week, if you were living your best possible life? If you don't know what that looks like, I'd... I'd you know, I think it's very unlikely you ever get there. But as you quite rightly said, that's not going to happen tomorrow. Or for most of us, it's going to take weeks, months, years, or, or a lifetime, uh, often a lifetime really. And, and it will even change a bit along the way. So what we also need to do, as well as having that nice, you know, that, that 
powerful, hopefully inspiring image or whatever it is that we're aiming towards, we also need to learn to enjoy every step along the way. Um, because if we don't, you know, we're going to be waiting 50, 60, 70 years to, to, to suddenly or hopefully experience something. So, uh, And we also need to enjoy some of those unexpected or unplanned detours that come up along the way. I don't know about you, but some of the best things in my life have happened by accident. Yeah. I've always been, uh, you know, I've had quite clear goals and plans and I think that's really important in lots of ways and I've coached and, and worked with many, many people. I've helped them to do the same, you know, set goals, work towards that. But I've always said, you know, don't, don't get so rigid or stuck on that that you lose sight of that thing that might be tucked around the corner or that you didn't expect to happen, that accidental meeting that, you know, might turn out to be your wife or a business partner or whatever. So, so getting that balance, and look, like all these things, it's easier said than done, but I, I think... Uh, hopefully the answer to your question is finding that balance between uh, the, the destination and the journey. And, and having and a plan to get there. Mm. One of the things I've learned, you talk about you know, bad things go wrong, and that's one of the things that we've learned. Life, life is, uh, I think it was Buddha who said it best, life is pain, suffering is optional, uh, which I think goes really hand in hand with, the, you know, with what it is that we're talking about right now because we can't avoid the failures in life. We can't avoid the things that go wrong, but we do have a level of control around you know, the meanings that we create when they happen and even post uh, post event because you know hindsight's this beautiful thing where in most cases you know an event will happen someone will look at it and will go oh my god that was the worst thing that could have possibly happened to me and then you know fast forward you know six days six weeks six months six years later they then look back on that event and go holy crap you know if it wasn't for that event i wouldn't be right that was the best possible thing that has ever possible could have ever happened to me so when we consider hindsight as being such a potent tool for regulating and managing you know our psychology how can we perhaps bring that into a, an everyday practice that might support us in the, in, the, in the moments where shit is hitting the fan, things are going wrong, we're high stress and we perhaps need more of a, a clearer head to be able to get out of the situation that we're in? How can we bring hindsight into the moment? Uh, well, again, I'd, I'd preface it by saying it's easier said than done because we get, when we get caught up in the emotions of a traumatic or negative event, it can be hard. But the simple answer, one word answer I'd say would be mindfulness. Um, now, I'm guessing a lot of your listeners would have heard of mindfulness. Um, it's one of those um, ostensibly simple strategies that can be just absolutely super powerful, and I'll, I'll explain a bit more now. So, just, actually, in, just for basic though, what, just for someone who's perhaps heard of mindfulness or heard of meditation, going, well, are they the same thing? What is mindfulness? Uh, well, so, so it's not exactly the same as meditation, but so mindfulness is well, there are like a lot of things. There are multiple different de- definitions, but mm-hmm. the simplest, or the definition that I usually use, is non-judgmental observation with curiosity. So what that means is when something happens, you know, we, our first response often is, oh, that's good or that's bad. Mm. Um, which is normally followed by an emotion. It jades our perspective. Which, or, exactly, which yep. then leads to a whole lot of other things. You know, if it's bad, we get upset. If we get upset, then we engage in whatever behavior is fine. Um, but as you quite rightly said, you know, that thing that seemed bad at the time, a week or a month or a year later, maybe wasn't quite so bad. And what that there's a, there's a phenomenon within, well, a psychological concept that's particularly consistent with positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. Now a lot of people oh, have like heard of, a lot of people have heard of post traumatic stress, yeah. And what we so we often assume that any sort of trauma or any negative life event will be an unpleasant, unhelpful one, but it's actually not true because, as you said earlier, you're 100 percent correct. The majority of people, so okay, trauma can be stressful. There's no doubt about it. it can be very distressing, and PTSD, uh, you know, is a highly distressing, disabling condition sometimes. But for the majority of people or significant number of people, if you ask them, have you ever experienced a negative life event? and all of us have in some way or other, if you then ask them, did you a week, a month, a year, or 10 years later, have you ever looked back at that and thought, although it was unpleasant in some way or other, 
it made me stronger, wiser, more mature, better. And 99.9% of people put up their hand. We've all been through that where it was, you know, maybe it was horrible at the time, but we learned something, we grew out of it, etc. And if we can, so this is part of the return, if we can remember that and then as it bring your hindsight to the present moment, through mindfulness, if we can, and it's very hard to do at times, but like a lot of things with practice, we can get better at it's it. It's like a muscle, we can develop it to become instinctive and reactive. So if we can actually get to a point where we can say to ourselves, okay, this has happened, is it good or bad? Well, I don't really know yet. Let's wait and see and let's see what we can do with it or learn from it. Um, there's actually, a, if I've got a few minutes, there's a, there's a famous ancient... Good China, or bad, hard to say. The Chinese farmer story. Of yeah, with the horse, yeah. Should I tell that or are you... We, can't, we literally covered it two episodes ago, but the, please give us the, the abridged version for those who maybe perhaps missed that episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a famous uh, Chinese uh, ancient wisdom story. But uh, so basically there's a farmer who, um, uh, who has horses and, and a family. And uh, anyway, one day uh, his favourite horse runs away and the neighbours come in and say, oh, that must be, that's terrible. You've lost your favourite horse. Oh, I don't know. We'll Good or bad, hard Good to say. Or, yeah. Good or bad, how to say. Um, the next day, the ho- his favourite horse comes back and brings with it a whole you know, herd of other horses. And they say, oh, you're the luckiest man in the world. You've got all these horses. Good or bad, hard to say. Uh, the next day, his son tries to ride one of these wild horses, falls off, breaks his leg. The neighbour comes around, oh, you're so unlucky, poor son. Good or bad, hard to say. The next day, sorry, I'm going through this quickly, but no, the next day, yeah. the, the local army or militia comes around, takes all the young men from the village away, but not his son because he's got a broken leg and it's... Um, and they say, "Oh, you're so lucky not to lose your son. Good or bad, hard to say." Anyway, mm. it can go on, but uh, I think, but that's it's a great story, and it's and it really, it really sums drives up a point, though. You know, that the, 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 there is a balance to everything. There is a duality to life, and oftentimes in the movement, you know, when things happen, there's a, there is a high amount of emotion. And if it's a negative emotion, in order for us to maintain that momentum, we have to block out all the positive aspects of what's going on in that moment. Or if it's a positive emotion, we have to block out all the negative aspects of what's going on in that moment. And for me, one of the things that I've learned is the real freedom in life comes from that mindfulness, being able to step back you know, in, a, in a painful situation or a traumatic situation or a high-stress situation and go, okay, good or bad, hard to say, let's look at both. And Definitely. I, I just, at the risk of disagreeing with you, I just, just pick up on one point. Um, I think it's, important. it's not about blocking out these emotions, and I think yep. that's a mistake some people make about good call. denying them. Yep. Um, the fact is they're real. Yep. Um, but what we – so, again, some of the – there's a whole lot of different... A better word, perhaps regulate. Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of um, metaphors that are used to help people understand the mindfulness concept, I suppose. And, yeah. and one of them, for example, is... Um, or one of the simplest ones, you're standing on the, the side of the road and a bus comes by. Um, do you, need, you don't need to get on. You can choose whether you get on or not. Um, if you get on, then that's like holding on to that emotion. Or you can just let it go past and that emotion will drift past. Oh, I love that. Or clouds in the sky. And imagine a perfect blue sky and this cloud rolls a lot, floats along. You can watch it. Um, you don't need to grab hold of it. Um, so it's the same with emotions. We know that emotions will come and go. It's really up to you whether you want to latch onto them or not. Do you think one of the challenges that people have when it comes to experiencing higher levels of happiness is perhaps we were never actually taught how to regulate emotion. We were never actually taught how to regulate stress. And so, you know, we experience an event and we experience an emotion, but we don't actually have whether it be the mental capacity or in some cases even the physical capacities in order to regulate. Uh, without a doubt, and this is something that's very topical for me at the moment. I mean, this is something I'm so passionate about. I spend quite a lot of time talking to, to schools. Um, 
not as much to the kids, but a lot to, to teachers and parents. Sometimes yeah. I talk to the kids, but um, I'm actually I've got a couple of parent talks coming up in the next few weeks. So it's very fresh in my mind. Plus, I have a teenage son. Um, How old? Who, he's 15. He's mm. going through this stage of experiencing some quite intense emotions and. I'm trying to teach him how to regulate it. But to, to come back to what I often say to parents, because I, I would go so far, almost I would go so far as to say that as a parent, there's one of the most important things you can teach your kids. Mm. And because I come in often as Dr. Happy from the Happiness Institute, they're often expecting me to say, this is how you can make your kids happy. And sometimes I surprise them by saying, well, I don't think that should be our primary goal as a parent or, or as a society. Yes, we'd love our kids to be healthy and happy, but they're not going to be happy all the time. None of us are happy all the time. That would be absurd almost to think would be actually pretty weird to think of someone that's smiling and happy every minute of every day Um, and certainly our particularly our teenage children for a variety of reasons are not going to be what's more important than trying to help them be happy all the time is as you quite rightly said to manage or regulate those emotions to understand that you know it's obviously great to feel good and to be happy and to be loved and to love etc but we're going to get angry we're going to get frustrated we're going to feel anxious and stressed and sad these are perfectly normal at times appropriate emotions what we need to do is rather than trying to banish them or, or you know we don't want to tell kids that it's bad to feel like that what we want to say is it's okay but yeah here's how you can regulate it here's how you can make sure that that anger doesn't lead to punching a wall or that that anxiety doesn't stop you from engaging in life um, and that's a really important difference so where does the the process of teaching someone how to regulate start because, you know, I've read a lot of information. I'm an addict. And one of the things that I've learned is my brain developed very differently than other brains based on the level of trauma uh, and the amount of trauma that I experienced as a child. And so as a result, I learned that I, you know, as a post result, I learned that I regulate emotions in a different way. Well, my brain processes information in a different way. Um, and I've since learned that one of the most important roles of a parent is to nurture their child when they are experiencing high levels of stress, especially as a toddler. You know, and I think oftentimes we confuse you know, a child's meltdown as a cry for attention that we need to avoid versus then actually giving them a level of safety that's going to help them develop in a, you know, in a healthy and productive way. So wh- at what, what responsibility do we as parents have and when does it start when it comes to showing our kids how to regulate emotions and stress? Oh, well, we have an enormous responsibility. I mean, you know, even, well, the simple answer is that the, the parent is the most important person in that child's life for quite a few years, um, for probably quite a few decades, I guess, parents, whether we like it or not as parents, and we sometimes don't like it because a lot of responsibility, <laughs> but we're the most important role model that child will ever have. Yep. Um, and so our children will, uh, most of what they, not necessarily 100%, but most of what they learn will be through watching us, uh, watching how we respond to distress, how we respond to difficult circumstances, how we bounce back from adversity. So we have an, an enormous uh, and, and a very important role to play. And when does it start? Well, from the very beginning, um, from day one. I mean, obviously, in the pre-verbal stages, there's it's a different sort of observation or learning, but they're still observing, they're still watching you. Uh, and certainly more and more as, as, as children go from babies to toddlers and then to little people, um, increasingly in how we talk to them, um, how we teach them to talk to us, etc. Uh, the extent to which we set up boundaries, help them to learn boundaries and rules, etc. That's vitally important. And, and look, as you said, I think, you know, when our kids get upset, and of course they're going to get upset, um, we need to understand that, that they're not born with a full-grown capacity to deal with this stuff. Mm. Um, none of us were. Um, some people find it easier than others, and great, you know, they're just like, 
some people some people are better singers or better sports people or some people are better at emotional regulation just naturally and that's fine but you know most of us need to learn at some stage and I suppose one of the things as parents is to try and be patient and forgiving and not expect our kids to get it right all the time from day dot day, day, day dot but um uh, coach them along the way and this is what I present a lot to parents you're very much like a coach that you need to help them bit by bit step by step um, hopefully grow into the sort of person that that you know, they can and you can be proud of. So if a parent up until now has been completely um, ignorant to the fact that they're, they've got an enormous responsibility to teach their kids how to regulate emotions and stress, you know, whether they be a toddler or a teenager, is there, a, is there any blanket advice that you can give to parents to say, apart from demonstrate how to regulate emotions yourself, which is probably the biggest challenge but probably one of the most important challenges, but is there some tools or techniques that you know, a parent can use when they see their child is in stress, they see their toddler is in, in distress to say, okay, perhaps if you try one, two, three, this might help you get through this. Uh, yeah, look, it's, uh, I suppose I go back to something you said earlier about how you you described um, that the way you've learned to manage or regulate emotions is different to other people. And I think the one thing I'd say is everyone is different yeah. and, and that's important. So every parent's different. Um, parents will have slightly different styles but and every child's different. So I have two children, for example, and they're quite different personalities and, uh, you know, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, my wife and I, you know, we deal with them differently because they're different people with different styles, etc. So that is important. I guess every every parent needs to find their own way and every parent needs to approach their children in a way that hopefully works for that particular child. But yeah, right. um, it is difficult to give blanket advice because we're all different. But the few things I would say is if sometimes if I have to sum it up to one word, I'd say love. Um, which might sound a bit corny and a bit general, but um, the research suggests that if we can create a nurturing, safe environment for our children, that is one of probably the most important thing. So how do we show love? Well, again, we show it differently, but however, whatever love means to you, um, show it as often as you, you, you can't over love a child. You, mm. you literally can't. You won't make a bad child if you give it too much. And some people are afraid of that. Well, I don't think you can know, over love anyone. No, you know, because exactly. when you look at even intimate relationships, you know, one of the most. And I was even just reading something before you came in about how you know people in loving relationships, you know, in often cases will live longer. They're better able to regulate stress. And you know what we're essentially doing with our children, we're in many cases also doing with our partners as well. Yeah, you're hundred percent right, and I think so. It's not just about children; it's about yeah. any any important person in our life. But I think sometimes there is a myth that I think some people, parents are scared that if they if they love their child too much, they'll spoil them. Yes, spoiling is a totally different thing. I mean, that you know maybe that's another discussion. But but genuine love, authentic love, where our children feel safe and and as I said, you know, comfortable. Um, you can't have too much of that at all. And then the so the other part of that, or the important part of that, is is communication. We've just got to keep talking to our kids. And, and that's hard because not all of us learned how to do that when we were growing up. Yeah. Not all of us had parents that were good communicators. But um, what I often say to parents is it, you don't have to get it right all the time. It doesn't matter if you stumble over a few words. It doesn't matter if you stuff it up every now and then. What is important is that our kids know we'll be there for them yeah. that we'll, through good and bad. Um, that will keep trying. I mean, I, I stuff it up all the time, but I literally said to myself the other day, I said, look, I'm sorry, I don't know, I stuffed it up, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. And I think, and, and that's, well, there's a couple of important messages. Hopefully he heard me that I'm going <laughs> to keep trying, but also hopefully he learned that, you know, and, and this is it, but that, that I'm not perfect and that I don't expect him to be perfect. And that's important as well. I think sometimes parents, or certainly historically, parents probably thought they had to put on this perfect image. They didn't want mm. their kids to see any faults or failings because they but but I don't think that's helpful actually. In fact, the the opposite. The I opposite, think it's helpful yeah. for my kids to see that I'm fallible. I make mistakes. 
But this, this is, is how, how I recover. This is how I try yeah. to deal with them. And I also think it's important to, to point out to, to parents what communication is. Communication isn't telling what our kids to do. It is conversing with them to, to achieve a common goal. Well, it's probably – so at the moment with my son, for example, what's more important is listening. Um, he, he, he doesn't really want to hear from me. <laughs> <laughs> but he doesn't want to at all. He's told me so. But, but what he does <laughs> want is for me to, to be there and listen. listen. And, and it's hard sometimes because I'm sort of thinking, well, I know what you could do and here's, here's the answer. He's not always looking for answers or solutions, and particularly for me because he knows what he does. He doesn't want me to be the psychologist. Yeah, He wants me to be there and just to listen. And I think we sometimes, not just with children, but in other in other yeah. areas, we forget the power of listening. I, I used to do that with my, my ex-wife. Like sometimes she would, you know, end of the day and she'd start unloading. And I learned to, this really valuable process where I'd ask the question, do you want me to fix or do you want me to listen? Mm. Uh, and I think listening, and again, in any consultative approach to life, it's, it's one of the most important things. So we've talked about some great stuff around, you know, not only finding happiness but creating sustainable happiness. We've talked about, you know, have got to have a happiness plan. We've got to know what are the things that we're looking for, you know, becoming more mindful uh, and also the use of love, which I've got to tell you, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I don't think anyone, let alone people we care about, but just humanity in general, the more love we have, it's not going to do us any harm. Communication is great. But what about uh, when it comes to the things that we do every day that perhaps we're unconscious of that could be you know, affecting the way that we feel, especially when it comes to our joy and our happiness? What about like diet, nutrition, hydration? Does that play a role as well? Oh, without a doubt. So um, there's no doubt that our physical health and well-being is integrally linked with our psychological health and well-being. And um, you know, one of the core components, one of the pillars of living a, our best life is is our physical health and well-being. So um, uh, you know, getting adequate sleep is is often underrated mm. or forgotten, but it's vitally important. Sleep is so so important to our sleep's becoming quite sexy now. Well, my, my first book was on sleep, and it was uh, it's probably it's the best selling book I've written. <laughs> it's go. such a big eight out of ten people at some stage in their life will have difficulty sleeping. It's a massive problem. So many of us don't get enough sleep, and then we wonder why we're tired and frustrated. We wonder why we're not performing our best, etc. So, um, you know, I used to talk about sleeping your way to the top, which uh, <laughs> <laughs> used to get a few giggles. But it was to try and make that point that really, if you you know you talked about performance earlier, if you want to perform at the best you can. Well, you, you can't possibly do that if you're sleep deprived. So sleep's important. Diet and nutrition is obviously important. I mean, these these things we live in require appropriate nutrition and sustenance. And and again, unfortunately, too many people don't. I mean, the average Australian, uh, I think it's only only about 10% of Australians eat the recommended levels of vegetables every day. Mm. That's atrocious, a terrible figure. Um, you know, we know the figures about obesity, et cetera, and, and increasingly in our children, which is a problem. So, um, But the other one is exercise, which is... Um, uh, which is obviously most people would know about that, but too many people think about exercise just for the the physical benefits, you know, yeah. getting big biceps, getting a six pack or whatever, and and obviously it can do that, and that's great. In oh, you know, there are advantages to being physically well, but what a lot of people don't realise that exercise is one of the most potent and effective antidepressants we have. For mm. me, it's it's probably my most uh, my best, uh, almost certainly my best antidepressant and stress buster. I go to the gym pretty much every day and without it and every now and then I can't. But if I go more than a couple of days, I notice it. I mm. really notice it. Because it does give us that uplift of, you know, dopamines, endorphins, that, you know, and the oxygen and there are so many good ingredients. Oh, well, there's, so there's that. There's a physiological yeah. uh, component to it, but there's also that sense of achievement. Yeah. For me, it's also a form of, um, almost a form of mindfulness. I mean, Definitely. When, when I'm in the gym, I kind of, I have quite a, a bit of an overactive mind, a lot of an overactive mind sometimes. But when I'm in the gym, it's one of those places I can just, all I'm thinking of is that next rep, that next set. So for me, it's one of the few places I can just, I don't think about anything else. I don't worry yeah. about anything else. It's 
What about, are there any particular foods that, you know, that if we are looking to become more happy that we should perhaps avoid because they can potentially, you know, give us the, you know, give us the feelings that we don't necessarily want? Oh, look, yes and no. I, I know it's going to be an, indep- an individual thing yeah. and it's always around moderation as well. But for some people, you know, moderation is, is not even something they understand. It, it's, it's actually a really exciting area, this idea of um, the relationship to food and psychology. Yeah. Um, but it's also a fairly new area. So I'm just going to be a little bit cautious because the science is very young. But there's, there's some pretty exciting research. And I think, in the next, I think in the next five or ten years we're going to see some really interesting research about specifics of what will either boost or detract from our mood. But at the moment the key findings are pretty general and basically what they just say is eat a good diet, uh, which we should all be doing anyway. So by that I mean, you know, you've probably heard the mantra – Eat mostly real food, mm-hmm. and by that I mean not packaged stuff, not processed stuff, stuff that's actually come from a tree, been dug out of the ground or been killed, whatever. So real food that doesn't have numbers or you know, fancy chemicals in it. Um, mostly vegetables, uh, as I said earlier, this is where a lot of people go down, and not too much of it. Um, you know, what we're seeing, is the biggest problems are people are eating too much, too much processed food, which has high levels of salt, sugar, etc. Um, and that, you know, that just can't be good for anyone. And what about too often? Because, you know, intermittent fasting is something I've been subscribing to now for a couple of years. Um, there also seems to be some early experience and very, very immature you know, data coming through that, you know, even fasting has the ability to, to regulate mood and, and, and give us better, you know, make us feel better. Yeah, oh, I'm glad you brought that up because I've actually recently been involved in writing the psychological content for a, a new fasting diet that's just oh, been launched, actually. So perfect, let's very do hot it. For me. Uh, yeah. Am I allowed to mention what it's called? Yeah, please, <laughs> so yeah, plug away. The Superfast Diet has just launched a few a month or so ago. So you're an intermittent faster yourself? Uh, I've tried it a bit. I, okay. well, I've, I guess I've come up, yes, I have tried it, and I, I've, I've come to my own version of it, and that's one of the things I liked about Superfast Diet is that it offers a, a number of varieties. So yeah. most people are probably familiar with the 5-2. Yep. That's kind of the most, I suppose, the most famous one. But I didn't quite realise up until like six or nine months ago, there's all sorts of different variations. Lots of schedules, yeah. Yeah, so what they, you know, they sort of recommend people try it out and see what works for you and you can mix and match it a little bit. But but you, you're 100% right. What um, You know, there's some really exciting research, I think, and it is in the early days that shows well, it's, it's, it can be helpful for weight loss. Uh, it can definitely be helpful for health and well-being. And also, there's some early research that it could be good for longevity. So oh, there's something about early onset that. Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease. It's like mm. it's nothing but good anti-aging. There's nothing but good news about it. Exactly, and that's why I'm quite excited. I, I was, um, I mean, I researched it very carefully before I got involved because yep. I'm not a fan of most quote unquote diets. Yeah. But this is quite different. But this is more lifestyle based. Like when exactly. you look at the purest of it, and exactly. I'm a purist, like I, I do the, I typically do the six twenty, the six eighteen. Yep. So I'll, I'll fast for eighteen hours a day, have a six hour window. I've been doing this now for two years. So for me, I'm, I'm well and truly into my journey. I've been fasting for sixteen years before that, like seven to ten day, like mm-hmm. water fast. And what I've experienced, but this isn't just about um, health. This is when it comes to business. This is when it comes to most people treat this stuff like it's a bloody event. They don't treat it like a lifestyle. And one of the things that I like about the intermittent fasting schedule. Is you don't you can eat the same things you ate if you wanted to you you can eat the same amount of food you're just doing it in a different yeah. time frame and when it becomes a way of life losing weight becomes easy becoming smarter becomes easy you know becoming healthier becomes it because it's what you're doing every day not what you're doing every now and then yeah hundred yeah, percent right and that's again why I like that it. it is very much mm. about a lifestyle rather than just a you know a twelve week program that I'm gonna you know so I can lose five kilos or whatever it might be and um and definitely I mean I so I've um, um t- Mostly tried the one that you that you described, and what I and so my, my I suppose my favorite is I tend to eat a lot less at night time, um, and I will often go to bed. Not, I mean, not starving, but just a little bit hungry. But I find I sleep better. Mm. I wake up more you know, with a clearer mind, um, and I think 
what 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 I've seen because I've actually worked in this on and off for, for like over a decade now in various types of sort of dieting type approaches. And uh, what other things I've heard, people are scared of being hungry. Mm. There's a lot of people who are fearful of that sensation, and it's not necessary. I mean, I'm not talking. I'm not advocating anorexia or no, eating disorders no, or stuff. You wouldn't be. But uh, no, but I think for for a lot of people, um, we've for, we've forgotten what it's like, and that's not necessarily and it becomes a normal uncomfortable. Thing. But again, this is like failure. And this is what I had to teach myself is I taught myself that, that being hungry wasn't a bad thing, that when I'm hungry, my body is actually healing, that when I'm hungry, my brain is becoming sharper. When I'm hungry, all these amazing things are happening at a mitochondrial level that are making me a, a, a better human and, and, and more performance. And once my once I shifted over to that, because again, it's when you go to the gym for the first time, you start lifting your weight and you're like, oh, shit, this is starting to hurt. You know, I'm going to put the weight down. It's like, no, 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 that's what you want. You want to look at your association with pain. What does pain mean? What does hunger mean? And do you think that's maybe part of the challenge for some people? Oh, without a doubt. Um, again, we, it's about um, uh, yeah. Well, I suppose it's about seeing that bigger picture. Mm. Um, and I think you're right. And seeing a lot of the advantages. And like you, I found uh, clarity of thought is is a, a really positive side effect that can come from. Again, we're not talking about starving yourself for days no. and days or weeks, but just you know, we're talking about a couple of hours, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, and for most people listening, I think you know they're not going to have. Uh, difficulty finding food if they need it um but yeah that that clarity and and for me again better sleep and a whole lot of other benefits that come from it it's um yeah it was really quite exciting when i first discovered it a while oh, ago. i'm so glad that you're into it because for me it's, it's real well, like we've got um, most of our clients are on intermittent fasting schedules yeah. now and the beautiful thing is is it's not a one-size-fits-all you can find a schedule that's you know that, that, that's right for you uh, but i am curious you know i think happiness has become one of those things where people often search for it you know in a pill in a glass in a relationship in a car in a house um, but we've also seen the advent, um, from my perspective, and I, and I hope I'm not, you know, going somewhere that might be uncomfortable for you. But I think we're living in an age where there's a lot of overprescription of drugs, you know, especially when it comes to antidepressants. You know, they, I, I know when you look at the, the, pharmaceutical, the pharmaceutical statistics, especially around the different antidepressant drugs, these are, have become a very hot commodity to be able to move off the shelf and create billions of dollars for some of these companies. Now, without going into the conspiracy aspects of it, I am curious to know, though, you know, is there a level of over-prescription over when it comes to... If there is, is there a, uh, an over-diagnosis and over-prescription of certain, certain drugs when it comes to things like depression? Uh, without a doubt, um, and I'm more than happy to talk about right. it. Um, for a number of reasons, one professionally but also personally. I mean, one of the things I haven't mentioned yet is that... Um, but it's something I've started to speak a lot more openly about in recent years is that I've suffered depression on and off for most of my adult life. Um, which comes as a surprise to most people. Not at all. That um, would make sense. Like uh, you're pursuing something that's close to you, that's close to your heart. Uh, well, it didn't really come about like that, but that's, I mean, that was sort of a... a all right, I was clearly way off base. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, well, maybe we can talk about that later. But, but <laughs> depression in some ways is just as important to me as happiness. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's why, and particularly in recent years, I've become a very strong advocate for mental health and, and trying to help more people um, be honest and open about it and talk up, and, and particularly men, dare I say it, um, because we're pretty crap at that a lot of the time, yeah. uh, and asking for help, et cetera. But to come, maybe we'll come back to this, but to come back to your question, um, there, there's both, a, well, like a lot of things, there's a good side and a bad side. One of, the, one of the better things we've seen in the last decade, or probably a couple of decades, I suppose, is an increasing awareness around mental health, uh, increasing awareness around depression, anxiety, more GPs, for example, are getting trained in it. More people are familiar with it. We've seen, you know, organisations like Beyond Blue and Black Dog, etc. Um, you know, raise the conversation. And so, in most of the time, that's a great thing. Um, so, more people are coming forward. More people are putting up their hand. More people are presenting to GPs. The dark side of that, although I think some of the negative sides of that, is that um, I, I think more people. 
people are being overdiagnosed. So some people with normal variations of mood are being diagnosed. I definitely think too many people are being prescribed. Now, that's not to say no one should ever be on antidepressants, but there's no doubt at all. I don't think anyone would disagree that there's, um, you know, it's just the easiest option. Mm. Um, but the easiest option isn't always the best option, not long term anyway. So we do have, um, and again, without getting into too many conspiracy theories at all, we do have a multi-billion dollar industry. And like any other multi-billion dollar industry, they're going to do what they can to sell a product. Mm. And um, in a, it, and for, I think there are some unfortunate consequences of that which are uh, very hard to deal with because, it's a, again, it's a very powerful machine that's out there now. And we're dealing with highly addictive drugs that have, you know, a lot of consequences with, you know, over, over time with use. Well, we can be. I mean, the, the one of the thing, one of the myths that was sold is that these things didn't have side effects, they weren't addictive, but mm. that's rec- you know, more recently been proven not necessarily. Well, we just got to look at the aftermarket. <laughs> you know, some of these drugs have an incredible value in the aftermarket, you know, from a recreational perspective now. But I am curious to know, like for people who perhaps uh, are wondering about going to the doctor or the doctor has told them you need a pill, is, is there a better way to prevent overdiagnosis at the individual level where they can go to the doctor and say, well, is there perhaps a different test other than your opinion that you can give me, maybe to test chemical levels in my blood or my brain that would give me greater indications of whether or not it is perhaps you know, a logical next uh, right step? The simple answer is no, not at the moment uh, for a number of reasons, uh, but the answer is also that may well be possible in the next five or ten years. I mean, there's, I think, again, we're going to see uh, rapid increases in things like genetic testing and, and individual biological or physiological testing that will, you know, go towards. So there's talk about, you know, being able to uh, perfectly individualise a dart, for example. So by taking a blood test or a genetic test, we can know exactly what you as an individual need but and stuff like that. But But I think that's still a good few years away either for weight loss or diet or things like depression. But the other part is, um, and this this is a bit controversial, but I, I feel quite strongly about it and I've researched this quite heavily, so I'm pretty confident. Uh, there, I don't believe there's any strong evidence that depression is due to imbalance of chemicals in our brain. I think this is well, this is a myth and a misinterpretation of the data. Um, now, that's not to say that we that we don't all have. Im- I mean, our, our neurochemicals and neurotransmitters are, are different and they vary from time to time and day to day and I'm not saying they might not vary in certain ways that might in some way contribute to our moods etc but there I don't believe there's any strong evidence to say depression is due uh, to a lack of serotonin or you know lack of dopamine or whatever it might be I I really think that's actually a a myth that's been perpetuated and so what do you think depression is is depression merely a perspective that has become so ingrained and so habitual so pattern driven that they just don't know any other way to think well so on the one hand depression is a normal human emotion and this is something so this is something i've particularly had to learn and have come to accept more and more that for me um i think you know when i first the worst parts of my depression were quite a few years ago now but it still rears its ugly head on a regular basis um but early on my um you know my goal i suppose my my idea was to try and beat this thing to try and uh, win the battle it's not a battle you can win. It's not a fight you can win. And increasingly I've learned to come and accept this is part of who I am. Now, I don't want it to take over my life and I don't like it when, you know, there are times when I struggle to get out of bed and, and you know, can't do the sorts of things I want to do, but not as much anymore because I've, I've learned to manage it well. But I think we need to see to a large extent that depression is a normal human. We, we've, we've um, I think to, to a large extent, in a lot of cases, we've turned a normal thing into something that's abnormal, and that's not necessarily a, a great idea. Uh, that being said, it can definitely be quite crippling and debilitating for a lot of people, myself included at times. And what is it? Well, it's, 
at the risk of getting sort of technical, it's a biopsychosocial phenomenon. It's it's a combination. There's no doubt there are biological influences, uh, uh, genetic probably and hereditary influences. We don't really know what they are yet, but they're probably there. Um, and at some point we might know what they are, and so we might be able to have uh, pharmacological or genetic interventions that will help with that. But but I don't think we're there yet. Um, there there's definitely psychological factors. So depression is a uh, or, or clinical you know um, major depressive disorder. That the technical term we use is a combination of low mood, poor sleep, dysfunctional cognition, um, in interpersonal relationships that aren't working, etc. 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 So it's a multifaceted phenomenon. It's mm. not it's not just low mood. People forget that sometimes. Uh, but then it's also very much a social phenomenon. Um, and this is a bit that's often left out. Um, when we look at people who are depressed, they often talk about feeling disconnected, feeling lonely, uh, feeling different. Um, and that's often not addressed, that social uh, aspect. And that's a pity because so I, I remember you know, when I first had my early bouts of quite severe depression, I thought I was the only person in the world. Mm. No one would understand me. That's why we don't talk about it. We, we, we think we're weird or unusual in some way. And yet... You know, if you look at the statistics, I definitely wasn't the only person in the world. In fact, I was probably surrounded by people, but I didn't know it because they didn't talk about it, and they didn't know it because I didn't talk about it. So we feel, and this is why the um, the 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 movement that's grown over the last few years about telling stories, lived experience stories, is so important. I think because, and this is why I tell my story. I mean, I don't necessarily think people will be that interested in me as an individual, but if they can hear that there's one other person. Who suffered depression, but still gone on to live a thriving, flourishing, successful life. This is life. what makes you real. This is what makes. I think this is what people connect with. Like people connect with the individual. They connect with the vulnerability and the fact that you are Doctor Happiness, who has experienced depression. That to me makes you more attractive as a professional because you can actually relate. You can connect to the experience of the people who perhaps look at the happiness, you know, science. And go well. I want more of that. But how could I ever have? How could he ever understand me? I'm feeling depressed. If he's all happy, like, I think that's your gift. Uh, oh, thank you. And and but yeah, I'm not happy all the time. Yeah. And, and I don't think anyone will be. And this is again, people sometimes surprised when Doctor Happy from the Happiness Institute says you won't be happy all the time. <laughs> That's not a negative thing. It's, I'm not trying That's to be a pessimistic. It's a reality. And again, because again, it, it comes down to those realistic expectations of life. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and in fact, what I suppose what I've also done and what I try to help other people do is to is to actually find beauty in some of that mm. misery, which sounds weird in a way. But when I look back at I mean, some of my saddest moments have also been my most important learning moments. Mm. Um, some of my, a lot of my experiences have helped me be more empathic and, and understand other people. And that's led me to, thankfully, do some important work, I suppose. So, um, you know, if, if we can find the good in the bad, um, which is a bit of a bit zen, I suppose, but, you know, the, 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 the duality the, of the, the light within the yeah. dark. Um, because sadly there will be dark. Yeah. Um, and for some of us more than others, but uh, we'll all have some of it. And if you can um, again see this, so there's a um, there's a, a Japanese concept you might well be familiar with called wabi sabi, which is about finding the beauty in imperfection. Mm. Um, and you know we are, despite the fact we don't like to think about it, sometimes we're all imperfect, um, and life is imperfect. But some of that can actually be really beautiful. Well, I think that's where the beauty actually comes from is the imperfections in life. Uh, and I know from my own personal experience, you know, one of the reasons I've been able to reach. The, the amount of people that, that, that we have and many re- one of the reasons I've been able to help in some cases many youths uh, with drug addiction is because they, they, they can relate to me and they can re- they know that I'm not just talking about mm. you know, a concept, I'm talking about something that I've actually lived. But I am curious to know though if there is certain supplements that perhaps, because we've talked about diet, we've talked about exercise, we've talked about mindfulness and having a plan, love, communication. But there's two areas we haven't gone to yet. And the, before I hit the last one, the, the, the first one I want to talk about is about supplementation. Are there any supplements that perhaps we can take 
you know, whether it be vitamin B or vitamin C or a vitamin D on a regular basis that will not necessarily increase our happiness, but perhaps support the probability of happiness being, you know, easier to come by. Oh, look, I probably should qualify this by saying it's a, probably a bit beyond my area of expertise. I mean, I'm a, yep. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian. No, that's fine. Um, but it is something I've had a personal interest in and looked into. So there, there certainly are a number of products out there that make claims. Um, I think there are a few question marks around some of the claims that are made. Um, what I would, at the risk of maybe being a bit too maybe vague or general, what I would go back to is in an ideal world we would just eat a good balanced nutritional diet yep. that would cover that. Now the reality is we don't all do that for obvious reasons, so there may well be some supplements that for different people will work. But again, I think it will come down to the individual and I guess what I'd say is probably see an expert, you know, yep. go and see a qualified nutritionist or dietitian, uh, look at your diet and if there is a gap there then fine maybe maybe you can fill that gap with a, a supplement and that may well be useful for you meditation we haven't talked about it but uh, it's been a passion of mine for about 20 years uh, i've seen an enormous amount of research come out of especially the transcendental meditation movement uh, and the, the and what happens you know not just at a biological but a biochemical and a neurochemical level of the brain has meditation proven to be either in soft science or hard science as something that can actually support happiness at a greater level Without a doubt, um, you know, I often say it's one of the, and so I meditate every day, at least, uh, or at least once a day, sometimes twice a day, depending. You do uh, TM or? Uh, no, I do. Well, I do a couple of different versions, but usually just 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 breathing techniques. Yep. I suppose focusing my mind, breathing techniques. Uh, sometimes with some muscular relaxation involved in that. Sometimes with some visualization. So I, I've got a couple of different. Um, I mean, I've done this for many many years. I suppose what I've done is combine bits and pieces from different more that work for me i've yeah. kind of created my own version which um which i encourage other people to do yeah absolutely because there are lots of different styles yeah. um and i always say i don't think there's one perfect one um yeah. i usually encourage people to go and try a few different ones and then create their own version but but i do and, and i don't do it for that long so i do uh, 10 minutes pretty much every morning yeah and then i'll sometimes do another 10 to 15 minutes 10 to 15 minutes every morning and then another 10 to 15 minutes sometimes Beautiful. through the day if i can yeah and for that um you know if i, I often say to people if i could if you could massively improve your life in 10 minutes a day, oh. would would you do it? I say, oh, of course I would. I yeah, know. meditate. Oh, I can't do yeah. that. I don't <laughs> exactly. know. How I, I tried it. It doesn't work, exactly. you know. And for such a um, – I was going to say simple. Look, it's it's not as easy as it sounds, but with practice you can get but better. But neither, neither was lifting a weight when you first go to the gym. You know, exactly. And I say this to people, they go, oh, I tried meditation. My mind's too busy. So, well, when you first picked up a 20-kilo barbell, could you lift it? Well, no. That's the whole yeah. fucking point. Excuse the French. <laughs> but we've got to learn. We've got to, it's, a, it's a muscle. We've got to learn how to develop it over time. Uh, yeah, and again, like any other school, could you drive a car perfectly the first time you got in it? Exactly. Well, it Most of us almost crashed the first few times. But um, Or any, you know, I mean, typing or whatever it might be. Um, but uh, so to come back to you, because there's absolutely no doubt there's a lot of science that shows it's incredible incredibly beneficial in all sort, almost every way you can imagine and there's virtually no side effects there's virtually no negatives to it so it's massively helpful but it is uh, some people do struggle with it more than others so it does require practice but uh, there are a whole lot of myths and misconceptions that are that get in the way of people and one of them so some people think they've got to totally clear their mind uh, not think about anything else for 10 or 15 minutes well you don't part of mindfulness meditation is accepting your mind will wander from time mm, to time and that's the point uh, that's sometimes that's yeah. it. sometimes i'll go 10 minutes and have the most blissful almost out-of-body experience other times i'll just be thinking crap all the time yeah. but that's part of it there's good mm. and bad days and and getting used to that is part of it. but sorry to come back there's absolutely no that's helpful i recommend that there's not one person that i wouldn't recommend it to mm. 
But as you said, unfortunately, not everyone um, either gives it a go or gives it enough of a go to get to the point where they actually experience the benefits. I think if we look at some of the core issues in society, a lot of it comes back to discipline and the ability to, to learn how to apply ourselves to difficult things for extended periods of time in order to reap the rewards that yeah. we're looking for. There is one other aspect that I want to talk to you about, um, which is, uh, you know, talk track, uh, auto-suggestion. You know, the, the conversation that we have with ourselves, that little voice in our head. Um, you know, oftentimes, in, uh, one of the things I've observed in psychology, it, it, some people either talk about it or they don't. But I am curious to know from your perspective, because I, I often say to people who has a, you know, I'll be doing an event, I'll I say, put your hand up if you've got a little voice in your head. And, you know, 80% of the room will put their hand up. And I'll say, and for those of you who aren't putting your hand up, you're sitting there saying to yourself, I don't have a fucking voice in my head. Everybody has a voice in their head. I guess the question is, number one, how conscious and aware are you that it's of, it, of it when it is there? And number two, how conscious are you of the fact that you programmed it to say what it's saying right now? So I'm curious to know from your perspective, based on all the science, is there, is there anything that should really motivate us to start becoming more conscious of the things that we say to ourselves on a regular basis? And do those things, are they literally, self, do they become self, uh, self-hypnotic pros, prophecies? Are they a form of you know, uh, self-hypnosis through the use of self-suggestion? Uh, so without a doubt, as, as you said, whether we realise it or not, we all have that going on, yeah. that internal self-diagram, whatever you call it. There's a whole bunch of different words. I mean, I, I grew up, my, my, most of my professional training was in cognitive behaviour therapy or cognitive therapy, so we use slightly different language, but exactly what you've been describing. Uh, is there any, why should people become more mindful of it? Because it's so bloody important. Mm. There's absolutely no doubt that, um, so that, that voice is not just inconsequential. It's super important. That, that little voice, whether you're aware of it or not, impacts on the way you feel. Uh, what you do, so therefore how successful you are, how you interact with other people, how you interact with yourself even. That little voice, I mean, according to, to my training, is really the, the heart and soul of everything. Mm. That contributes, again, to our, our mood, our behaviours, our relationships and our life. Um, so if you're not aware of it, then that's going to be having effects that you're not even aware of. Um, and so you're probably not living your best life without even being aware of it. By becoming more aware of it, why should we do it? Because by becoming more aware of it, we can have more control over it. Um, and this is the thing. So you, you're right. We've we've largely pre-trained that, or and to some extent, our parents and other people mm-hmm. have. We're, so wherever we are now, that's come from partly ourselves, partly our significant others, um, not just parents, but teachers and all sorts of other influences. Um, and that, but that's what it is. But what we all have the ability to do is decide what we're going to say from here on in. Mm. So I, obviously, I can't change what happened to me. 10, 20 years ago, what I can learn to do, and just like these other things we've spoken about, it is a, a skill that requires practice and can be hard, very hard at first, but we can get better at it. And the first step is definitely awareness because you can't change something if you don't know what it is. Mm. So if that little voice is chatting away and you're just ignoring it or pretending it's not there, well, good, bad or whatever, you're not going to be able to do anything about it. It's going to continue to influence your life whether you like it or not. But we can do something about it. We can learn to talk back to it. We can learn to change. Again, there's all sorts of different metaphors or words that are used. But the the bottom line is we can learn to change the way we think about things. And if we do, we can change our lives. Beautiful. I've got to say, this has been, I, I want to get back. I'd actually like to bring you back in so we can actually have a whole session perhaps on depression. Because one of the things that um, that we've discovered with the work that we do with business owners is depression in business seems to be at epidemic levels. You know, we've never seen, you know, higher rates of mental illness coming out, you know, in the areas of entrepreneurs and business as well. But with what we've talked about today, uh, Dr. Tim Sharp, it's been a real honor and a great pleasure to have you in here. Oh, thanks a lot. It's been fun. Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, mate. 
There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor. Don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media at Kerwin Ray. 